your Bible and find your place with me in Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. We have moved back into our verse-by-verse study, walking through the book of Judges that we began last January, then took about four months off through the summer and September, and now we are going to finish it up, Lord willing, sometime between now and Thanksgiving. Let me set the stage and kind of preface the message this morning by telling a story Because we're going to, again, look at the life of Samson this morning. Last week we looked at Samson's life and kind of did a a, a synopsis or an overview of of his life and his ministry there as a judge, the 12th judge of of Israel during this time period. But uh, this morning we're going to go back and look at his life again and, and look at it from the perspective of what can we learn from the life of Samson, this man who in many ways was a mess. And, and so this morning I, I want to just... Uh, kind of preface everything by sharing a short story with you that I think will, will really help us understand what we're going to see in the life of Samson. Jerry Lynn was really wanting to get his cable television hooked up, and he was tired of waiting on the cable company. Can anybody testify to that? Uh, we got any cable workers in here? I apologize, but uh, I've got the cable company coming this afternoon because yesterday I cut the cord and then I had uh, Mike Howard who came over so generously and fixed it for me temporarily so I could watch the Arkansas game. And then during that game, I wished that the cable had been cut so I didn't have to see that mess. But uh, all in all, we have cable television and he's coming today, Lord willing, to finally fix it. But Jerry Lynn wanted the cable television hooked up in his house. He got tired of waiting, so he figured he would do it himself. He would just uh, figure it out. But he wasn't sure exactly where to drill the hole to to run the wire through, the cable through the wall. And so after thinking and strategizing and planning for it, he came up with his own plan. And he decided he could take his wife's alarm clock and he could set it and then lower it down through the air vent that was in the second floor through the wall, get it to where he thought it would be right, and then when it went off, he would know exactly where to drill the hole. And so he decided to do it. He went upstairs or he went to his bedroom, got his wife's alarm clock, and uh, went upstairs, tied a string around it, lowered it down through the air vent in the wall after setting it, and then when he figured he was at the right place, he tied it off, ran downstairs real quick, and while he was running downstairs, the string broke, and the clock fell, lodging itself in the air vent between the wall and the other wall. There was no way of getting the clock out. Sure enough, 10 minutes later, Amplified by the air vent itself, stuck there on those two walls, there was this awful loud buzzing that reverberated all throughout the house for one solid minute. Well, Jerry didn't know what to do, and so he drilled the hole and he left the alarm clock in the wall. Next day, 7.50, guess what happened? Alarm went off. For one solid minute, reverberating, loud buzzing all throughout the the house. Every evening this took place. And every evening, Jerry would look at his wife and he would tell her, Don't worry, honey. The batteries will run out. There's coming a day that this will stop. The batteries will die. Thirteen years go by. Thirteen years go by. These must have been the best batteries that the market offered. 13 years, this alarm went off every single day at 7.50 p.m. But Jerry said in response to this one day, he says, we pay really no attention. 
It's really so much part of our life now that at 7.50, we don't even notice the alarm clock is going off. In fact, unless someone is visiting and in our house and they hear it go off, we don't recognize it. 13 years that alarm went off. You know, here in this story, we see a tragedy that's really the tragedy in Samson's life, and many times it's a tragedy in our own life. See, in the life of so many Christians, people who follow Jesus Christ, people who are in relationship with Jesus Christ, sin has become such a part of their lives that when the alarm clock is sounding in their mind and in their heart and their conscience, they don't even hear it. When the Holy Spirit is prompting them about the sin in their lives, they can't even recognize it because they become so accustomed to it. You see, sin has become such a part of who we are. It's so habitual, so much a part of our lifestyle that when our conscience goes off and the, and the alarm is sounded, we are unresponsive to our conscience and we are unresponsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit about the sin that is in our lives. And this is exactly what has happened in the life of Samson as we come here to these four chapters, chapters 13 through 16. This 12th judge of Israel had quieted the promptings of the Holy Spirit so much in his life that he no longer even heard the voice of God. And we're going to see this throughout his life and all of the things that happened to Samson. Last week as we did an overview of this judge, we named him Samson the unlikely. Samson the unlikely for many reasons. Unlikely because of his birth. Unlikely because of his uh, fleshly dealings or his lifestyle. It's unlikely that he was ever a judge and a leader in Israel. Much less he recorded in the hall of faith found in Hebrews chapter 11. Was you know Samson's birth was miraculous. Let me just kind of walk you through this story. We, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. I don't want to read uh, four chapters of Scripture. I don't, want us to, I don't want to put you through that and then still try to preach on top of that. So let me give you a 30,000 viewpoint of what took place through the life of Samson. He was born miraculously. The Bible tells us in chapter 13 that, he was, that his mom was barren. But one day the angel of the Lord came and visited Samson's mother and her husband, Manoah. And the angel of the Lord told her that she would bear a son who would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The angel also told him, Manoah and his wife, that the boy to be born was special. And the angel gave instructions to Samson's mother that she was to follow a Nazarite type of vow, a a diet that a Nazarite would follow because of this special child to be born. She was also instructed to raise the boys as a Nazarite. In other words, he was to never drink wine. He was to never touch strong drink. He was never to to touch a dead carcass or break any of the regulations that we find in number six in regards to the Nazarite vow. And so the woman there at the end of chapter 13 gives birth to a son. She names him Samson. And the Bible tells us in the last two verses of chapter 13 that the boy grew and the Lord blessed and he began to stir him. So at the end of chapter 13, things are beginning to look really, really good for this next judge. But as we come into chapter 14, we see that something tragic has happened. Something tragic has happened in the life of Samson between 1325 and chapter 14, verse 1. You see, this called out man of God, with the Spirit of God upon him, blessing him, stirring him, became increasingly numb to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God. 
We know this because of how chapter 14 begins. We looked at these verses last week. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, 1 through 5, we see Samson going down to the city of Timnah, and there he sees a Philistine woman, and he, he longs for her. He tells his parents to get her for him as a wife. So the Hebrew word here that's used to speak of this woman in Timnah is not the word typically that we would see in this sort of situation. We would expect the word for woman here that's used to be one that refers to her being a virgin. But the word that's used here is a word that refers to her as simply a woman, meaning she could have been divorced, she could have been a widow. We don't know exactly what that means, but most likely she had some sort of past. So regardless, this was not the right woman for this Nazarite leader of Israel. And on top of that, this woman was a Philistine. She was the enemy. She was someone who was not right for any Jew. All Jews were forbidden to marry outside of their people. And this would have been doubly so for this man of God who had the calling of God upon his life. And so the alarm of the Holy Spirit must have been sounding off when Samson was there in Timnah and longing for this woman, but he could not or perhaps would not hear the alarm. He paid no attention. Samson tells his parents to get the woman for him. The wedding is arranged. And then one, on one of the trips back down to Timnah, the Bible tells us that Samson took and he ate some honey from the carcass of a lion that he had killed. On one of the trips, the lion came out. He, took, uh, he grabbed the lion apparently with his bare hands and ripped it apart. And so on another trip, he headed by, he goes over, he looks at it. He sees this lion carcass there, petrified because of the arid uh, climate that they lived in. And inside that carcass is a hive of bees with some wonderful sweet honey. How many of you would reach inside of a lion carcass and eat honey? Not only is it disgusting, right? Not only is it disgusting, it's forbidden for a Nazarite to touch anything that is dead. The alarm was sounding. But Samson paid no attention. Later, at the wedding feast, Samson presented a riddle to the Philistine attendants. He had hoped to swindle them and get from them some belongings. But it backfired on Samson when the attendants got his soon-to-be wife to tell them the secret of the riddle. So Samson was furious. He goes down to Ashkelon and he kills 30 men. And he robs them in order to pay the debt to those men. Surely the alarm was going off as he killed those 30 men in cold blood. Then he went home with his wife, or without his wife. And so her dad gave her to someone else. Well, later on, when he came to his senses, realized he still wanted this woman from Timnah, he goes and he finds out that the father had given her to another man. And again, in rage, Samson is furious. The Bible tells us that he went and he caught 300 foxes. He tied their tails together, put a torch in between each of the two foxes, set them loose in the standing grain of the Philistines, which burned up all of their crops. This obviously enraged the Philistines, which came against uh, uh, Samson, and a battle waged there, and uh, all kinds of death took place. In fact, it led even to the fact that the men whose crops were burned took Samson's wife and her father and burned them, which then insinuated Samson to retaliate, and he went and he hunted down those men and killed them and mutilated their bodies that we see in chapter 15. The alarm was sounding off in Samson's life, but he did not hear it. 
After this, the Philistines marched on the people of Judah. They thought, if we can't get Samson, then we're going to pressure the people of Judah. Maybe they can get Samson. So the Judites respond by going and talking Samson down from the mountainside. They arrest him, bind him, bring him to the Philistines at Lehi. And there, Samson snaps the ropes, and he takes a jawbone from a donkey that's lying on the ground, apparently, and he kills the 1,000 soldiers that came to transport him. I mean, this is a crazy, crazy story. As he kills the thousand men, surely the alarm was again sounding. Chapter 16 begins. We see Samson visiting a prostitute in Gaza. There in Gaza, as he's visiting this prostitute, he's again ambushed by the Philistines. Surely as he's there in this brothel, or he's there in this home of this Philistine, uh, he's a Jew, he should have never been there. He's a Nazarite, he should have never been there. The alarm is sounding off. But Samson pays no attention. The Bible says he's ambushed. He finds out somehow that the ambush is out there, that men are lying and waiting for him to capture him or to kill him. And so Samson somehow goes out to the gates and and is unnoticed. He, in his incredible, miraculous strength, takes the city gates, breaks them up from the foundation, puts them on his shoulders, and carries them up the hill. It's an amazing thing. The next thing we see in chapter 16 is he's again in the arms of a Philistine woman. You kind of see a a, a pattern here in his life. He's in the arms of Delilah, this Philistine woman who the Bible tells us deceives him into telling her the secret of his great strength. And he gives in after many promptings of that, her desiring to know the secret, he gives in. He tells her that the secret is in his hair. And so she lulls him to sleep on her lap. She calls for someone to come and they shave his head. And then when she says, wake up, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He wakes up just like every other time this had happened. He thinks that he's going to shrug off the people who are there to capture him, only to find out that the Spirit of God had left him because his head had been shaved. Every time this deceptive woman was asking him for a secret, he got closer and closer to the truth until ultimately he told the truth. The alarm was sounding loud in his life, but he paid it no attention. The Philistines arrest him. They gouge out his eyes. They shackle him. They put him in prison. And the alarm was going off all the while, but he was impervious to its sound. And it's here that we would expect Samson's story to end. You would read through these first three chapters in the first half of chapter 16. You would think, what a waste of a life. The story must end here. But the story does not end here for Samson. And that's the good news. You see, as we come to verse 22 in chapter 16, the Bible tells us that Samson's hair began to grow again. The grace of God is bestowed upon Samson. It's extended to this man who had refused to listen and had forgotten how to hear the voice of God in his life. But God was gracious. And one day when his hair had grown out, Samson is brought to the palace. There in the, this palace, he's there at this festival celebrating Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And there in a, 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 as an amusement figure... He prays to the Lord. He asks for strength one last time to avenge those or to avenge his eyes by those who had taken them. In this final act, the Bible tells us that Samson killed more Philistines than all of his other feats put together. And so Samson was a man of God. This is what I want us to look at this morning. Samson was a man of God, but he smelled of the world. He was a man of God, but he smelled of the world. 
You know, Paul talks about the aroma that should be in the life of a follower of Jesus. He told the Corinthians there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 what this aroma was like. Aromas are, are interesting. We're going to read chapter 2, verse 15 in just a minute. But think about scents. Think about smells. You ever go into a place? Surely you do. Especially we're about to be on the, on the cusp of Thanksgiving. There's nothing like walking or, or waking up in the morning at Mama's house. And, and you wake up to the smell of turkey in the oven and dressing. Can I get an amen for that? Apple pie. Some of you, you like custard pies and pumpkin pie. I'm an apple pie guy. I'm a fruit guy. Uh, and so there's nothing like those smells. There's nothing like waking up in the morning to a freshly brewed cup of coffee. Unfortunately, I get up earlier than anyone else in my house. So I never get to smell that smell while in the bed. But I remember as a child uh, just getting to smell the aroma of my dad as he was up before anyone else. And the coffee was brewing. And if you remember back in the 80s and 90s, Folger's commercial was this. The best part of waking up is what? Folger's in your cup. The smell of coffee. That's a, I don't drink Folger's anymore, so that's not a perk for them. I've moved on to bigger and better th- things. I, I'm snobby with my coffee. Since smells are a big deal. And I really believe that every person has their own distinct smell. I don't want you to lean over to your neighbor this morning and smell them unless they smell good. But I think we all have a, our particular smell and our particular scent. And I'm not talking about perfume or cologne because we can mask our smell. But we all have our own odor, so to speak. We all have a terrible odor when we're working out in the yard. Uh, Yesterday I was out covered and drenched in sweat. I probably smelled like death warmed over, but we all have a smell. Let me illustrate what I mean by this. Now, as a 39-year-old man, when I come in and just take my undershirt off and maybe put a different T-shirt on after I get home from the office, I smell my dad and I smell my grandpa in my white T-shirt. I don't know if you guys ever have ever noticed that. may sound gross to you, but I'm not talking about a B.O. I'm talking about a... A normal, natural scent. I smell my dad and I smell my grandpa when I take my shirt off at night. The aroma of my dad is in my body. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at the screen. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We go on to verse 16 and following. talks about how to one it's a, a smell of death to death because they're outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It reminds them of their lostness. To others, it's a smell of life to life because they realize and they recognize, I'm in Christ. The life of Christ I smell in you is the life of Christ that I smell in me. That's the idea of what Paul is getting to here in these verses. But the key verse is we try to understand Samson and how he was a called man of God and yet smelled of the world is found in chapter 16, verse 5. Look at the screen. It says, And the lords of the Philistines, this is the Delilah story. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, seduce Samson, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we might bind him to humble him. It's interesting to me that the Philistines had no idea where Samson's strength came from. Here's a Jew, a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Here is a man who is set apart as a Nazarite, a special man, a special calling upon his life. And the way he lived gave people around him no clue as to where his great strength came from. You see, the smell of God was not on 
Samson. The only smell, the only scent, the only aroma in his life was the aroma of the world around him. The, the Philistines and probably the Jews themselves, the only thing they smelled on Samson was the same thing they smelt on themselves. The aroma of the world. Here's a called man of God who smelled like the world. They had no idea where his strength came from. As we look here at the life of Samson, I want to share with you four lessons that we learn from Samson. You know, we're in the latter part of this book, and I'll be honest with you. um, There's going to be some interesting stories as we move toward chapter 21 and the conclusion of this book. We'll really get into the appendices of the book of Judges. And so we're going to see a lot of crazy stuff. We're going to see a a woman cut up and her parts sent to the 12 tribes of Israel and, and all kinds of weird things happening. But as we look at Samson's life, it's much the same. And so what is there to learn from this messed up guy who's called of God but smelled of the world? Let me give you four things. The first thing I want us to see this morning is this. You are known best... By what consumes you the most. In your life, you are known best by what consumes you the most. We see it here in the life of Samson, verse 5. See, when the Philistines bribed Delilah to deceive Samson, they really were hoping to gain an advantage over this strong warrior. They had tried everything that they knew to do to get the upper hand. Uh, They had tried everything. They had tried uh, setting an ambush. They had tried... um, trying to trick him in a riddle, all sorts of things they had tried. Nothing had worked. In every situation, they failed. So it's interesting as we come here to verse 5 that the Philistines really had no idea where his strength came from. They had no concept of of the fact that his strength was attributed to the strength of Almighty God. It never entered their mind. So this fact here clues us in to the reality that Samson's life gave no evidence of walking with God. They did not know him as a man of God. The Philistines never would have said, Samson is a a follower of the God of Israel. Samson is a committed follower, a committed Jew. He's, He's committed to the Torah. They had no concept of that being a reality in Samson's life. Because when they were trying to figure out how to stop this guy, it never entered their mind that the God of Israel who brought them through the wilderness for 40 years and sustained them and gave them victory, who brought them across the Jordan River, who's displaced Jericho and all these other peoples, is the God who upholds the arms of this great warrior. To them, Samson was simply known for his taste for the sensual. You see, they set the trap for him there in uh, Gaza because they knew that Samson was a man who was bending, or who had a bent toward the sensual. He had often visited Philistine women. He had often been there in situations he should have never been in. They knew him for his fits of rage. Every time they had tried to defeat him and bind him, he had busted loose. They knew him also of his unprecedented strength. I mean, who is there in all of the Bible who ripped up the gates of the city and put them on his shoulder and carried them up the hill? The Philistines knew Samson by the things that consumed his life. Likewise, in our own lives, the people around us, the people in our circles of influence, you know how they know us? They know us, they know you by what consumes your life. So what are the things that consume you? What are the things that you think about? What are the things you talk about? What are the things, what, is, what does your calendar say about what consumes your life? What, are the, what does your checkbook say about what consumes your life? People know you best by what consumes you the most. You see, uh, I, I know people in my life that uh, because of living in, in Alabama, uh, 
football is a religion down there. And so last night I was watching some of the Alabama game, trying to get into that religion, trying to get on a winning team maybe. And, and so in many circles, the sports that we watch are what consumes our life, and that's how people know us best. Oh, he's a, he's a diehard Duke fan. He's a diehard North Carolina fan, or she's a diehard Redskins fan. You know, the, it's what consumes us. Many times our recreation uh, is what people know us by because that's what we talk about. We're always talking about the next trip. We're always talking about what we're doing next. We're always talking about the new thing that we bought. Our family is one of those things. Our money is one of those things. Our toys are one of those things. There's nothing wrong with any of those, but when people know us best by those other things, other than our relationship with Jesus, something's out of balance in our life. People know you best by what consumes you the most. There's a second lesson I want you to see here, and that is the battle is lost when you neglect the details. The battle is lost when you neglect the details. You see, the Samson's desire to have a Philistine woman with a most likely a checkered past there in the beginning part of chapter 14 didn't just happen. Do you know that you don't just fall into sin? You don't just fall into gross sin. You don't wake up one day having this hot, intimate relationship with the Lord, totally committed to your wife, totally committed to the church, and then all of a sudden fall in to an adulterous affair. That doesn't just happen for illustration purposes. It happens little by little by little as you neglect the details of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, down the road a spell, it culminates with this, what we would call a great sin. But all the while, there's what we would call little sins happening that led to this ultimate fall in our lives. That's what happened to Samson. See, in chapter 13, it ends there in verse 25 with God stirring his heart, moving in his life, blessing him. But as we move into chapter 14, he's neglecting that. He's desiring a woman he should have never been with. And all of the things begin to unravel in his life. Why? Because he neglected the little things in his life and in his walk with God. It always starts with the small and the insignificant. That is the neglection of God's word. And little by little in Samson's life, it led up to that day in Timnah. Look at what Bob Jones says in regards to temptation. He says, what you do in the hour of temptation will depend, depend upon what you were the day before. What you do in the hour of temptation will depend upon what you were the day before. You see, I'm going to make decisions today based upon how I lived yesterday. I'm going to make decisions today when faced with temptation based upon how I believed yesterday. It doesn't just happen. It's a continuation. It's a culmination of myriad decisions in our life. Thomas Akempis said these words, temptation discovers what we are. Temptation discovers what we are. As we neglect the little things in our spiritual life, it will one day culminate into this grand scandal in our lives, in our relationships, and in our families. I think I made this statement to you back in August when we were talking about servanthood. But you play like you prepare. If you want a strong, vibrant Christian walk, if you want a strong, vibrant, hot relationship with the Lord, it takes daily preparation. It takes daily practice of that relationship so that when you're faced with a great temptation, you can stand up and take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Victory is always secured in the details, in everything. You watched football yesterday. If your team lost, it's because they failed in the details. They failed in the little things. My team was terrible. They couldn't block and they couldn't tackle. You know what happened? We got blew out. 
Because they failed in the trenches. They failed in the little things. And it's the same for us in our spiritual lives. There's a third thing I want you to see. And that is prayerless choices lead to destructive habits. Prayerless choices lead to destructive habits. Of the four chapters dedicated to the life and the story of, of Samson, this man of God, how many times do you see him praying in these four chapters? How many times does he call upon God in four chapters of Scripture? There's no other story in all of Judges that's given as much detail as the life of Samson. He's apparently pretty important for us to, to learn and learn from. How many times does Samson call upon God? Two times. Two times. Chapter 15, after he kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone there at Lehi, which Lehi in Hebrew means jawbone, he calls upon the Lord, or better yet, if you read this, the text there, he calls out God. He says, why would you, basically I'm going to paraphrase here, God, why would you allow me to die of thirst because he's deathly thirsty after killing a thousand men? It's like ninja on steroids is what he must have been at that point. I mean, just crazy uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme type situation going on there. He kills a thousand men, and then he's basically ticked off at God because God has called or allowed him to get so thirsty. And he says, why would you give me such a victory and then let me die in thirst? And so even though he calls upon God, he literally calls out God in this first situation in chapter 15. We move to chapter 16. And here we find Samson praying in the palace of a Philistine or as a Philistine prisoner. His eyes have been gouged out. He's there shackled and he calls upon God for strength in his life. But even at this point, as he calls upon God, what is he asking from the Lord? God, give me strength one last time that I may avenge my eyes upon those who gouged him out. Give me strength. So it's not like he was a completely broken man, humble before the Lord. He wants vengeance. See, his prayerless choices led to these destructive habits in his life. Do you think if Samson, going back to chapter 14, would have asked God for wisdom when he was in Timnah, that it would have made a difference when he saw that woman? Do you think if, if Samson would have been detailed in his spiritual walk and not taking shortcuts in his spiritual life, that when he came to Timnah that day and he had already prayed to the Lord, Lord, if there's anything that I see or that I shouldn't see, help me not to engage in that. Do you think it would have made a difference when he saw the lady there in Timnah? Absolutely it would have. And it would have set in motion all of these different things that would have taken place. See, he wouldn't have been desiring her. He wouldn't have went back to dad and said, get that woman for me. She's right in my eyes, not in the Lord's eyes. He wouldn't have entered into this marriage relationship, which means he wouldn't have been traveling back and forth down to Timnah to get this whole thing organized, which means he wouldn't have killed the lion because it wouldn't have attacked him, which means he wouldn't have eaten out of a dead carcass, which means he wouldn't have swindled the people there in, in, in Timnah during this arrangement, which led to all sorts of other things. And so this whole cycle of events would have been avoided by simply being a man who prayed to the Lord and sought the Lord's will and then listened to the Lord's direction in his life. When we make choices devoid of God's will and voice in our life, it will always lead to destructive habits. All the problems in Samson's life stemmed from his lack of prayer. The prayerless choices he made early on 
led to those habits that we see later on in his life. And the same is true for you and I today. When we make a decision without seeking God's face and seeking his voice, then sinful choices will lead to destructive habits. Where, how will this play out? It'll play out in your finances. When you're just making decisions out of, um, you, you see something you want and you just immediately purchase without seeing or seeking the face of God and, and what His will would be and, and, and operating your money or managing your money according to His principles, His word given to you. It, it'll, it plays itself out in our health, in our morality, in our relationships, everything in our life. If we don't seek God's face and pray and seek His will, we will make a mess of it all. Samson was a mess. But the fourth lesson and the final lesson we see here is some good news. Some would say this is where the story gets gooder. Fourth lesson is this. God's grace is greater than all your sin. Samson's life was a mess. I mean, you want to know someone who was messed up in life? It's Samson. We can talk about his strength. We can talk about his incredible military feats. Really, this judge here that was supposed to lead the people of Israel in conquest against the Philistines never had anyone else serving alongside of him. Have you ever noticed that in the text? You look at Jephthah, you look at Barak, you look at Ehud, you look at Othniel, you see these judges leading the people of Israel, and they're defeating the Syrians and all the other people around them. But in Samson, he's the only one fighting, and the only battles he's fighting are his own battles. He's a mess. But God's grace was greater than his sin. You know, grace is an amazing thing, and that's no pun with the the great hymn. But it really is an amazing thing. But do we understand what grace is? If we think about it in these terms, if mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve, that is judgment, then grace is God giving us what we do not deserve, and that is forgiveness. William Barclay said this about grace. He said the word grace emphasizes at one and the same time the helpless poverty of man and the limitless kindness of God. In other words, we're spiritually bankrupt. We can't do anything to earn or or, or even garner the favor of God, and yet he extends it to us. That's grace. When he should be sending us to hell, when he should be judging our sin, he says, I will forgive that sin. I shouldn't. I'm not uh, obligated to. You do nothing to, to cause me to look in favor towards you, but in my sovereign love and kindness, I'm going to give you what you do not deserve. And that's what he did for Samson. Here's a man who lived his entire life for himself. He indulged in the pleasures of self-gratification without any care, any thought of what it did to the Lord and what it did to the others who were around him. His fixation upon the sensual had long ago drowned out the voice of God in his life. Samson's sinful choices, it wrecked his body, it wrecked his life, and it left him nothing more than a prisoner in enemy territory. But God. I love the but gods that we find throughout Scripture. It's when our life is a wreck, it's when our life is a mess that the Lord steps in where the Bible says, but God, and he does a work in us that we would have never dreamed. And that's what happens here in verse 22 of chapter 16. It says, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. What does this mean? It means that Samson smelled like the world. Samson was hardly even recognizable as a child of God. Samson was hardly even recognizable as a man of God, a a called servant of God. But God purposed to do a new work in this man's heart and in his life. And the same is true for you and I today. See, you may smell 
so much like the world that no one would ever know that you're a follower of Jesus because of the way you're living your life right now. Oh, you may hide it when you come to church. You may put the religious facade on. You may be able to say the right words and do the right mannerisms, but the people in your circles of influence, they don't know that you're a follower of Jesus by the way you live. You could be in the same boat that Samson's in, but God will step in your life, and he will extend grace to you, and he will cover your sin, and he will renew your relationship with him, and he will do a fresh work in your heart. That's what he's beginning to do in Samson. You may think that you're beyond the forgiveness of Christ, the reach of his loving, gracious arms. You may think that there's no way that God could ever forgive you, but the truth is, if God can extend grace to this messed up judge, God can and will extend grace to you. His grace is greater than all your sin. You know, in Samson's life, though he didn't end the way we would hope he ended, but he did call upon the Lord. But for him to get to that point, what had to happen? God had to break Samson. God had to break Samson. God had to allow Samson to get to the end of himself, to break his nose against the wall of the reality of life, so that in his broken state, he would then be in a situation where God could lift him from his mess. And God has to do that for you and I. You see, we're arrogant and we're proudful people. And God will allow us to continue to walk in our sin long enough so that we get to the end of ourselves when we absolutely make a mess of everything and there's no hope whatsoever. And then when we look up, what happens? When we call upon him, he reaches down and then we're in a position that he can help. Samson had to get to a place of brokenness. He had to get to a place of humility. And when he did, and when he called upon the name of the Lord, God gave him grace. God gave him favor. And so, Christian, this morning, what do you smell like? What's the aroma of your life? What do the people in your house think about your life with Jesus? What is the story that's being written about you telling? Do you smell like Jesus or do you smell like the world? How do the people at your work think about your life? Would you... Would they say that you smell like Jesus, or would they smell, say that you smell in many ways like them? I think if we look at the life of Samson, we need to see something here. We need to see that we can never be comfortable with the things of this world. We need to always be comfortable in the things of the Lord. And so, is the alarm going off? Going back to Jerry Lynn. Thirteen years, he listened to an alarm clock sounding in the wall. It became so routine, he didn't even hear it anymore. Is that like you? The alarm of the Holy Spirit's going on in your life as a follower of Jesus, but you do not hear it because you've drowned out the voice of God with decision after decision after decision as you walk away for Him. What's the message for you this morning? Though your sin be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. God's grace is greater than your sin. If you're not in relationship with Jesus today, today could be the day of salvation for you. God's grace is greater than your sin. I was a religious kid, 18 years old, freshman at the University of Arkansas. 
two quiet times a day, teaching Sunday school, seventh grade boys. I had it. I looked the part on the outside, but I was inside a spiritual mess. And God, in his graciousness, reached down to me one day through a, word, through a verse in 1 John chapter 5 that told me that he who has the Son has life. But he who does not have the Son does not have life. And that day, even in my religion, I became a child of God. Not because I earned it, not because I was, garnered it, all because God's grace was great. And I recognized my sin, and I put my faith in Jesus. I pray that if you're not in relationship with him today, this today would be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Samson. Though we wish Samson's life could have looked a whole lot better, more picturesque, God, perhaps the reason you devoted such a lengthy passage to it is because it resembles so much of our own lives. That though we have been called out as a follower of Jesus Christ, so many times we in the church become comfortable with that and we begin to take on more of the the, the aroma of the world that's around us rather than being the aroma of Christ influence the world that is around us. And so, Lord, we allow sins to infiltrate. And Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that every child of God in here who's walking at a guilty distance, regardless if they're 85 or 15, Married, unmarried, man or woman. God, if they're walking at a guilty distance, may today be the day that they experience your grace. Father, may we not have to fall to the very end. But Lord Jesus, may we recognize that we're on a path that's leading to destruction and turn from it. Lord, perhaps there's others sitting in this room that have never came to a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps they're religious or not, but they know today that they've never placed their faith and trust in you. They've never experienced your forgiveness in their life. So, Lord, they're in their sin. They're dead in their sin and trespasses, the Bible says. I pray this morning that today they would understand that you love them and you love them so much. You did what was necessary so that they could escape the wrath and the punishment of a holy God and experience the love and the freedom of the Son of God. May, Lord Jesus, they come before you today and calling out, asking you to forgive them of their sins. Lord, as we move into a time of invitation, I pray that every one of us would have a desire, perhaps like never before, to exemplify and to smell like a child of God. And to put off those old worldly clothes that cause us to smell like the world. Bless this invitation, Lord Jesus. May we be obedient to the spirit of God's calling as the alarm is sounding off in our hearts. God, may we have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.